1972, in a hotel in Washington, D.C., a scandal took place that would rock the nation. Alarm bells went off, committees were called, and eventually the president would resign. Though Watergate is remembered for many things, it should also be remembered as the pivotal event for a groundbreaking piece of legislation to enter the political arena. I'm your host, Alexandra Leal, and welcome back to Democracy Is, a show by California Common Cause dedicated to exploring the complex and crucial systems that shape our democracy. This week, we'll be taking a closer look at the history, context, and relevance of the Political Reform Act of 1974, a piece of California law that I bet you didn't know serves as the foundation for how we try to keep money and shady actors out of politics in California. In this episode, we'll be exploring what this overlooked piece of legislation means for you, the voter, and why the PRA still works at combating the influence of money in politics almost 50 years after its introduction. Have you watched Succession? In season three of the HBO hit show, Connor Roy, eldest son of Logan Roy, a billionaire media tycoon who has amassed great societal power and influence, decides to run for US president. Connor Roy strategizes that even though he has no qualifications, no vision for the country, and no powerful personal story, if he spends enough money promoting himself in the media, it will eventually lift him above his contenders. Although this is just a TV show, Connor's use of personal wealth to fund his success as a politician is, unfortunately, a reality of our political climate. Millionaires and billionaires fund their own campaigns for office all the time, in California and nationally. Unlike in the case of Connor Roy, in American politics, spending your own money, spending family money, or accessing networks of money often proves extremely successful in garnering votes. In Donald Trump's 2016 campaign for president, for example, he spent $66 million of his own money. Corporations are also guilty of trying to take advantage of the system with their deep pockets. In 2022, Crystal Geyser participated in a campaign to defeat a measure in Siskiyou County that would require companies who bottle water to obtain permits. Flyers and advertisements swept through the county advocating for voters to reject the measure, with zero mention that the organization funding them was Crystal Geyser. We have created a political system in which the wealthy and those with wealthy families and networks can leverage their money to win office. That means we leave behind equally, sometimes even more qualified candidates who rely on a diversified pool of donations from regular folks like you and me. And it means our elected officials don't truly represent us and our interests. Politicians are constantly raising money for their next election. Members of the House of Representatives, sick of calling wealthy donors and begging for money, have come forward to the media to reveal how bad the problem is. They say that the political parties instruct new members of the House that they should spend 30 hours a week on the phone calling donors and trying to sweet talk their way into donations. The organization Issue One did some math 
and found that in 2021, sitting U.S. senators running for re-election in 2022 raised about $13,600 each day. What does this mean for you and me and our communities? Data shows that because our elected officials spend their time talking to rich people, lobbyists, special interests, and industry groups that want their ear, they become influenced by those folks and more responsive to their needs. In 2014, a major Sacramento-based lobbyist was investigated for throwing many parties for legislators and politicians and not reporting them, despite that counting as a campaign contribution. And it's easy to understand why elected officials are inclined to listen to these folks. If you hold elected office and you need wealthy donors and special interest groups to give you money, you're going to consciously or subconsciously do what they want in order to keep the money train going. In an ideal electoral system, candidates would succeed on the merits of their good ideas and by establishing personal connections with voters. Effective policies, passion, and powerful personal narratives are rewarded with votes, while destructive candidates focused solely on personal enrichment are shunned. However, just as we saw in succession, this exemplary view of democracy is not how most elections in the United States tend to operate. For decades, political reform activists like Common Cause have fought to place greater restrictions on how money operates in our politics and limit the influence it has over our lawmakers. Passing laws to lessen the power of money in campaigns and politics is known as campaign finance reform. The goal is a leveling of the playing field for candidates across different backgrounds, communities, and identities, and undoing the massive advantage that the wealthy and well-connected have. We're trying to give everyone an equal opportunity to run for office and win, and trying to ensure our politicians are responsive to the needs of regular folks like you and me. Thus, we introduce the Political Reform Act of 1974. Now, money was always a hot topic when it came to political campaigns, whether it was President Andrew Jackson accusing the Bank of the United States of contributing to his opponent in an effort to stop his reelection, or rumors that presidential candidate Ulysses S. Grant had one supporter give a fourth of the total finances, many Americans worried about the pressure their candidates may be receiving from their largest donors. And throughout the 20th century, reporters, political writers, and advocates argued that corporate wealth in politics would hurt the average voter, and they often advocated for antitrust laws and a restriction on corporate lobbying and campaign contributions. The biggest wave of support came in the wake of the Watergate scandal. During the fallout of Watergate, new groups and new leaders emerged to push for a better, more representative, and more accountable government, including our very own common cause. And the original drafter of the Political Reform Act a young lawyer named Bob Stern. Both nationally and in California, citizen activists took the public outrage over Watergate and used it to pass landmark reforms in government ethics and campaign finance. To help us understand the scope and impact of the Political Reform Act, California Common Cause is thrilled to welcome Anne Ravel to the show. Anne Ravel served as the chair of the Fair Political Practices Commission, or the FPPC. 
which is the governing body enforcing the laws under the Political Reform Act, providing us great insight into the commission's day-to-day functions. Anne's position at the time was supported by her unmatched expertise on the Political Reform Act. And we are so happy we had the chance to sit down with Anne Raffle. Hello, Anne. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Oh, thank you so much for inviting me. It's an honor to have you. We're really excited to talk to you for this episode on the Political Reform Act. Um, We'd first like to know, prior to Watergate and subsequently the PRA, what did campaign finance law look like? Well, prior to the Political Reform Act, as well as the federal law, campaign finance law, number one, was never enforced, but entirely significant also was that there was very little in the way of disclosure requirements to the public. And disclosure is one of the major purposes of campaign finance regulation, in addition to limitations on how much people could contribute to various campaigns. And that just didn't exist. At the time, there was a huge gap in campaign financial policies or restrictions, and Nixon made it more and more clear that people with money could sway elections in their favor. In 1971, the Federal Election Campaign Act was passed, which would require candidates to disclose any contribution over $100. In the weeks prior to April 7, when the act would go into effect, Nixon told his supporters to bring as much cash, yes, cash, with them to D.C., and he would not report the contributions. From across the country, executives and supporters stuffed suitcases with cash and brought it to Washington, D.C. Between March and April, over $11 million, nearly $82 million today, had been deposited in President Nixon's re-election fund. With public distrust in government at an all-time high, the Political Reform Act garnered over 70% support from California voters after being presented as a statewide ballot initiative that the supporters, including a newborn baby version of our team at California Common Cause, claimed would, quote, put an end to corruption in politics. Though it may seem surprising, given our ever-polarized political climate today, there was minimal pushback against the Political Reform Act, and the bill saw bipartisan support across the board. After all, it's hard to object or vote no on a bill that is against corruption. The goals of the PRA were clear, to stop corruption, to limit the impact of special interest money spent on elections, to reaffirm public faith in democracy, and to increase transparency in our elections through a variety of different ways. Was the Political Reform Act initially successful at reaching its intention and its goals? I think it really was pretty good at reaching its goals because it definitely shut down the secrecy that existed at the time. I was discussing this with the person who was my uh, chief of enforcement at the time, and he reminded me that we were in a movie about campaign finance, and Governor Brown and Lockyer, who was the AG, spoke in that 
movie about how after the Political Reform Act, even early on, things changed significantly with regard to restrictions on lobbyists and other ethical kinds of issues. And that was significant in the legislature. As one of the most important bills in Common Cause's history, the Political Reform Act revolutionized California's approach to campaign finance regulations, making us the first state to pass any comprehensive political reform bill. The Political Reform Act of 1974 is rather comprehensive and thorough in its reforms, which at the time were seen as quite radical. It covered and continues to cover Five primary areas dealing with money and politics, which include number one, campaign finance, which covers topics like campaign contribution limits, spending, and donor disclosure. Two, lobbying. Three, conflicts of interest. Four, ethics in government, meaning things like gifts or travel. And five, enforcement. Another notable part of the PRA is its creation of the Fair Political Practices Commissions, again, the FPPC, which is an independent government body in California tasked with enforcing the laws in the PRA. It still exists today, doing the vital work of stewarding and upholding California's landmark good government law. Specifically, the Political Reform Act vests authority in the FPPC to, quote, adopt, amend, and rescind rules and regulations, essentially carrying out the provisions in the PRA of 1974 and for years thereafter. Basically, they are there to enforce and ensure compliance. It plays other roles as well. Once a bill is passed and the law is changed, it can be harder for smaller, local municipal governments to adhere to its rules. The same goes for candidates and citizen groups engaging in political action. The authors of the PRA predicted this and thus ensured that the FPPC also provides information and assistance to aid in compliance. The FPPC is meant to be a helpful resource, especially in the original administering of laws, alongside its policing duties. It does this by providing trainings about how to comply with the PRA, providing manuals, fact sheets, advice, and outreach programs. During your time as chair of the FPPC, what did you feel the commission's most important role was? And what was the biggest threat to achieving the goals of the commission and ultimately, of course, democracy and fair campaigns? Well, I think the most important role is the enforcement of the disclosure requirements. And that's because the whole purpose of disclosure about who's behind campaign contributions is not just to inform the public generally, but also to help them make decisions about who they're going to vote for. And that, I think, was one of the most significant things that happened because we, uh, when I was chair of the FPPC, actually went after a dark money case. And it was the first case in the country ever to go after these large entities and corporations that were funneling secret money into, in that case, the California election. And nobody knew who was behind them. And we ultimately went all the way to the California Supreme Court, and they had to uh, disgorge the money that had been spent. 
and uh, it was disgorged to the state. And they also had to pay a million dollar fine. And that was really significant. And I think together with the ethics requirements of the Political Reform Act, that was the most significant event in, I think, the history of the FPPC. Oh, my gosh, a million dollar fine. (laughs) Um, To these corporations might not seem like much. To me, it feels like a lot. (laughs) Yes, most definitely. It was probably the biggest fine ever imposed anywhere in the country for failure to disclose. Those are the main parts of the Political Reform Act of 1974 and how it was implemented to work as a force of democracy when it comes to campaign finance laws. With that background, we can now look at what this means for elections today. In order to succeed at its goal, the PRA was designed to be amended constantly, and it has been every year, in hopes that it can keep up with changes in technology, changes in campaign and fundraising tactics, and any subsequent loopholes that may emerge as the years go on. The original drafters of the PRA did not want that the legislature to treat the law lightly or weaken it and water it down through amendments. As a result, the bar is high. Amendments must be passed by the voters by ballot initiative or by two-thirds of both houses of the legislature. And any bill amending the law has to further its intents and purposes. If the legislature passes something that conflicts with the intents and purposes of the PRA, their action can be taken to court and invalidated. In the last few decades, we've seen a growing debate over whether or not money should be treated as speech. And in fact, one of the original goals of the PRA was to reduce the amount of money spent on elections. How has that impacted the FPPC's duties when it comes to protecting fair elections? It has made it extremely difficult, and that is in particularly because the extension of those First Amendment rights to big companies, to uh, individuals who are spending enormous amounts of money, it has made it much more difficult to determine how that public policy is being influenced and what a difference it's making in our electoral process when you don't know who's behind that money. And that is really, I think, one of the major problems that we have. And it's a problem for the FPPC. It's a problem federally as well. And the reason is, as I said before, if you can disclose that money, if you know that there's that unlimited amount of access that these individuals have to make a change in our public policy that we as members of the community might not want. But if you cannot know it, it's impossible for people to have that trust in the government process. What do you say to critics of the PRA that believe campaign fundraising and political spending is speech and therefore should not be regulated? Well, I think that obviously they're wrong about that, Uh, (laughs) that the amount of fundraising that has occurred in the United States generally, as well as in local governments and state governments like California, uh, we know is so excessive and that these are the people who have access to the elected officials and therefore. are able to influence policy in a way that is 
probably inappropriate. And so a good example of this is Open Secrets has looked at all the money that was spent during the midterm elections in both the state and the federal government and the amount of money that was spent and funneled through campaigns was $8 billion. Wow. Right. I mean, so that is that is one of the problems. Mm-hmm. And that's why, no, it is not speech. It is really just a way to have greater influence than those people who cannot contribute that amount of money. Wow. Eight billion is not a small dollar amount. No, it is definitely not. I mean, it was stunning because I I watched as they were, they kept re-looking at what was coming in, the data that was coming in after the midterm elections, and you could see it gradually moving up. I thought that originally, okay, let's see, 5 million, that's a lot of money. Uh, No, now (laughs) it's 8 billion. That, I think, is one of the biggest defects that we have now in our political system. Given the fact that the Political Reform Act is amended every year to try and close more loopholes, is there hope that we could ever have a perfect campaign finance system? Well, yes, you're right. It is amended consistently every year. And it is also true that the Political Reform Act and the legislature, that the FPPC, who can make changes as well as the legislature, are doing this because of the desire to close loopholes, as you mentioned. But the problem that we have and why there is probably never going to be a perfect campaign finance system in the United States is because there's very little hope under this Supreme Court, which has been the champion for unlimited contributions and independent expenditures by corporations, unions, and others. And because of that, It also impacts the disclosure requirements, as we discussed. So it's highly unlikely that the court is going to change its course. Thank you, Anne, for joining us on Democracy Is! and for such an insightful interview. So far in this episode, we have focused on why restrictions on campaign finance contributions work in favor of democracy and how it must continuously be amended because we continue to find bad actors taking advantage of loopholes, especially in our local communities. You may be wondering, how are you as a local community member directly affected by this statewide bill? To continue the conversation on how this looks on the ground, we talked to the executive director of Inland Empire United, Sky Allen, to give us insight into what money and politics issues look like when they touch the ground in the Inland Empire area. Hi, Sky. Thank you so much for joining us on the show. Hi, thank you so much for having me. It's an honor. Oh, it's awesome to have you here. Um, So as you know, we were talking about the Political Reform Act and campaign finance in this episode. Mm -hmm. So I'd love to know, when it comes to topics like campaign finance, there is a belief that the rules only really matter the most in places like D.C. and Sacramento. Why is campaign finance law relevant to local races and local issues? Yeah, I I hope that's not a widely held belief. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Of course, it matters for federal and state officials. I don't want to deny that. But I also think we should not underestimate the power of many at the local level either. 
for one, local decision makers make local decisions, right? So between Mm -hmm. your school board, your city council, your water district, your utility board, your county board of supervisors, all of these folks are the closest to your life and, and you really want them serving with you in mind. So when it comes to electing those officials, I would actually argue that because those local offices are nonpartisan, money is really important to their campaigns. As voters, most of us get our ballots, we look for the D's and R's, and we choose from there the candidates that align with our party preferences. Of course, in places like California, maybe you have more than one candidate from the same party, so some amount of additional research is required there. But that's even more true for local seats, where all we can view on our ballot is their designation. So that's teacher, local business owner, incumbent, etc. That can tell us about their careers, but that doesn't tell us much about their values or their priorities as an official. So voters really have to do their own research and look for websites and social media pages that can tell them more about the candidate. And with so many people on the ballot, um, that can become really overwhelming really quickly. That's also part of why we see a drop off in voter turnout as you get more local because the burden to entry is much higher. So with this in mind, Anything a candidate can do to lower that burden is going to go a long way. That's why we see mailers. That's where canvassing and phone banking comes in. And all of those things cost money. You either have to have a bunch of volunteer supporters with a lot of free time, or you have to budget to pay people so that they can have the means to offer you their time. Which brings us, of course, back to your question of fundraising and campaign finance laws. All candidates, regardless of how many constituents they have, have to be able to position themselves as great people for the role, and they need money to do that. Grassroots campaigns are powerful because neighbors are supporting a champion of their own, but if you don't have a lot of your neighbors giving you money, there's an opportunity for an interest group with a vested interest in your area to come in and contribute. So these could be labor, it could be a nonprofit with the C4 that allows them to contribute, um, but it could also be police, charter schools, real estate developers, corporations who have business there. And if candidates feel like those groups and the money that they have access to are the reason they were able to win the race, a really tricky dynamic emerges or people might feel indebted to those groups and thus make decisions with their donors in mind as opposed to their constituents. Um, so hopefully that helps clarify that, you know, even though the races aren't as big, they're not as national, um, they're still really important and money goes a long way in determining what happens after the election. Absolutely. Thank you, Sky. Of course. How have you seen actors take advantage of loopholes in the Inland Empire? In my region, when I think of big money in campaigns, I think of the logistics sector, which is like the goods movement warehousing, trucking, all of those sorts of things. In the Inland Empire, being like San Bernardino and Riverside counties, we're home to the largest logistics hub in the world. We process 40% of um, the nation's goods, American goods. In the region, there are over 4,000 facilities covering more than 1 billion, with a B, square feet of land. Oh my gosh. Yeah. So... Instead of green space and local businesses that you can shop at, we're surrounded by massive warehouses. Um, For example, in cities like Fontana, we literally have streets where one side is entirely lined with warehouses. And on the other side, literally of the same street you're driving on, you see a residential neighborhood and an elementary school. Right. So it's it's very, very close. We breathe some of the worst air 
Um, and because there are so many warehouses, we're also increasingly offered fewer and fewer quality jobs because we're just inundated with minimum wage work here with you know, food, retail, and warehousing. So for years, residents have been asking, begging city council members and county supervisors to slow the development of new facilities, to not approve development projects so close to vulnerable spaces like homes and schools, and to negotiate for community benefits agreements, right? If we're gonna be housing these massive companies like where, like Amazon and allowing for them to use our resources to generate a profit for them, let's also identify ways for some of that to find its way back to the community that allows it to happen. Mm, sure, that makes sense. Yeah, as you might assume, though, none of this has happened yet. <laughs> um, no matter how many hundreds of residents speak out, projects are just constantly being approved. And at the same time, we see those same officials receiving campaign contributions from contractors, from manufacturing companies, from trucking companies. And these are the, the same people who are trying to profit off of us while we're being priced out of our homes and suffering from asthma after years of living in these diesel death zones. So when I go back to thinking about your question of loopholes, you know, California law currently says, or previous, previous to last year said that an entity seeking a contract permit or license from appointed local government officials can't give a campaign contribution over $250 to them if they have influence over, you know, the thing that they're applying for while it's pending and a few months after to try to create a buffer where there's hopefully a little bit more ethics. But that's only for appointed officials. That doesn't apply to elected officials. So those school board members, those city council members, those county board of supervisors, it doesn't apply to any of them. They can get as much money as they want. Mm. If that if that same rule that is already in existence also apply to them, maybe it would be easier for residents to not get drowned out by Amazon because they wouldn't be able to give so much money while they have projects pending to be approved. So we're really excited about the passage of SB 1439 last year, because hopefully moving forward, that'll change some of that, that loophole no longer exists. Um, but of course, that's yet to be seen. But that's just one really powerful and really personal example of, of how some of this actually works out in, in our day to day lives. Thank you for that. Um, and we, too, here at California Comic Cause, having sponsored SB 1439, are also yes. very excited by its passage. <laughs> Congratulations. Thank you. Um, in your opinion, what do California's campaign finance laws like the PRA still need to address? Yeah. So I think one thing that in my mind feels low ball, but I'm sure it's not low hanging fruit in reality would be to strengthen disclosure requirements. I think there's a lot of opportunity to create more standards and more transparency, more consistency across place that everyone is following the same rules when it comes to recording contributions, posting contributions and making those accessible to the public. Some cities have really thorough, detailed records, and they post all of those things online for anyone to view and anyone to see and for researchers and academics and elected officials to analyze as they're trying to create future policy. But many cities do not. I have examples of some of the sorts of companies that are contributing to our candidates. Not all of our candidates and our communities have those records posted in the same ways that maybe like a city of Los Angeles does. So if those sorts of regulations were consistent across the entire state of California, for one, it would be easier to track where the problems are, to track 
you know, if there is an issue and it'd be easier to make future decisions based off of what's actually happening if we had a really consistent, transparent way of tracking everything. So I think that's one place that we should start. Beyond that, I think there is an opportunity to think bigger and think beyond just what we're currently doing and how to tinker around the edges. I find public financing a really promising model that re-centers fundraising on communities and the residents that officeholders actually serve, right? So going back to Los Angeles, they have a matching funds program that was recently strengthened these past couple of years. And that program has done a lot to support more grassroots candidates for office because every dollar that they get from a resident in their district is multiplied. So they get $5 from them and they get to actually play with $35 from them because it's matched. And that can go a long way to supporting grassroots candidates and empowering grassroots donors. Um, I was really excited to hear that Oakland passed a democracy dollar program, which is um, a voucher. I know that you all have talked about in past episodes, uh, but anyone who's starting here, that program is really wonderful at empowering residents and voters to become donors of supporting candidates. Um, of course, it's not been put into place yet, but we looked at cities like Seattle and see the returns on a program like that. So I really hope that at some point in the future, we can revisit Proposition 73 in the current ban on public financing in non-charter cities in California, because I think that would really open up a lot of doors and allow us to transform the whole system of campaign financing and thus elected office overall. Thank you, Sky, uh, for that insight and for the work you're doing in the Inland Empire. It's really necessary and we're really appreciative of it. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. It was wonderful being here. Yes, it's true that we have a long way to go when it comes to building a truly transparent campaign finance system. But advancements have been made to give us hope that it is possible. The FPPC that was created as a result of the passage of the PRA has been able to flex their power and punish bad actors. Crystal Geyser, the example we mentioned at the beginning of the episode, was fined over $67,000. The Sacramento-based lobbyist who was found guilty of throwing parties without properly disclosing them was fined $133,500, the largest fine ever handed down to a lobbyist in California's history. Some of the recent amendments to the Political Reform Act are also hugely impactful. Most were supported by Common Cause. AB 571, which was passed in 2021, introduced contribution limits for local races. Prior to this law, some counties and cities did not have contribution limits, and so local politicians were able to accept as much money as they wanted. Now, a city or county must create their own limit or the inflation-adjusted state limit for assembly and Senate races, which in 2023 is $5,500, will apply by default. This means a single special interest entity can't give massive campaign cash to elect a council member that will do their bidding. Most recently, SB 1439, which passed just last year in 2022, expanded the pay-to-play limit on contributions to local agencies. SB 1439 will help prevent pay-to-play scandals by closing loopholes that currently allow local representatives to accept large campaign contributions from special interests that have business before them. We have seen a need for this type of legislation throughout many of our communities. In the city of Linwood, for example, 
city council candidates in 2018 were allegedly asked to sign a pledge card supporting a local cannabis association's proposals in exchange for a $15,000 campaign contribution. Under SB 1439, any local official who received a campaign contribution of over $250 in the 12 months prior to the decision would have to disclose that fact on the record and either recuse themselves from the decision-making process or return the money within a specified time frame. Reforms like these are what's going to make the difference in the long run for our elections. With this episode, we here at California Common Cause hope that you can get a glimpse into why campaign finance is so important, why there is a need for constant upkeep, and why there is still room for improvement. Stories such as what we heard from Sky Allen or the example from the city of Linwood can imply a negative outlook on the future of our democracy. But friends, we are here to remind you that change is more than just possible. It is actually happening. We can win a democracy that works for all of us. Thank you for listening to the Democracy Is podcast presented by California Common Cause. We hope you enjoyed our show and that you'll join us next time for the next episode in our season two. Research, writing, and editing was done by our team, which includes Maya Chupkov, Pedro Hernandez, and myself, Alexandra Leal. We would also like to thank our former intern, Leili Milani, for her incredible work on this episode. If you'd like to learn more about the work California Common Cause does, how to get involved, or if you'd like to donate to our work or this podcast, please visit www.commoncause.org forward slash California. You can also find us on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and TikTok. Thank you.